Well, good morning. Let's turn to the first psalm with me, if you would. First of December, we'll, we'll begin a study in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, in the next few weeks before we get there, we're going to spend a little time in the Psalms. And I think we'll probably come back to the Psalms periodically. Uh, a little bit of information about the Psalms, each one of these messages. I'll just give you a, a, a few facts about them. They're, it's an interesting book. There are 150 Psalms, as you know. That's true in both the Jewish and Christian Old Testament, they're just divided up a little bit differently. The oldest psalm is Psalm 90, written by Moses, about 1,500 years uh, before Christ. The, the latest psalms, the youngest psalms, speak of the Babylonian captivity. Psalm 137 talks about being in Babylon. And so that's about 1,000 years later. The psalms cover an, an, an extraordinary period of time. The majority of them were written during the time of David, by David himself, he wrote 74, so not quite half. Uh, the sons of Korah were men at the temple. Asaph was a man David had hired, um, and they wrote 24 between them. Solomon wrote two, and uh, then there are a few others written, and then 48 are anonymous. They have no name attached to them. Psalm 1 is, is one of those. What do the Psalms have to do with us? 3,000 years later after David's time. Well, it's all about worship. The book of Leviticus lays out the mechanics of Old Testament worship. It's the priesthood and the temple and the tabernacle and all the furniture and the offerings and the prayers and, and all of that. And all of those things were fulfilled in Christ and satisfied in Christ. And, of course, we come now under his blood. We come according to his priesthood. Uh, but the book of Psalms, rather than governing the mechanics of worship speak of the heart of the worshiper. They speak of the man and woman who comes before the Lord. And so we, we see her coming in joy and dancing. We see him coming in despair, crushed by life. We, we see every human emotion experienced in the book of Psalms. But more important, we always see God large, in the eyes of the psalmist and the heart of the psalmist. No psalm is written from the point of view of the unrighteous. No psalm is written from the point of view of the enemies of God. Nor do we ever read, I sought the Lord, but he was nowhere to be found. So I figured it out on my own. The psalms are not intended to be a self-help guide. They are prayers that are directed to God in the fullness of the human experience. They do for us exactly what they did for David and the sons of Korah and for the people of Israel. They help us to personally come to the person of God. They enable us to put words to wordless emotions and experiences. Joy and celebration and gratitude and thankfulness and fear and pain and disappointment. It's, it's all here. I find that in my own life, there are times, many times, when I simply don't really know how to come before the Lord 
in my particular state of mind. There are times in my life where I felt like I can't pray because I feel this way. And it's through reading the Psalms that I find out, wow, there was someone there who was that brokenhearted. There's somebody else who was that angry at the wicked or utterly disgusted with themselves. And so I think that this is going to be a a time of blessing for us. If you would stand with me, let's read the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, we come before you to humble ourselves before your word, to be taught, to be instructed, to be encouraged, and to be guided in life as we approach this book. And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do among us this morning. And in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. There are several kinds of psalms. Each one has their their own characteristics. Psalm 1 is called a wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms are instructive. They teach us something. Uh, They usually compare the life of believers with the life of the unrighteous. They'll talk about the the consequences that face the the, the righteous and the consequences that face the wicked. They they often use a, a parable or a word picture. And they often point to final judgment. We see all of these in the first psalm. The very first word of Psalm 1 in the English and in the Hebrew is the word blessed or blessed. It's an adjective. It describes a a particular state, an objective state or a personal experience. It's also translated happy, favored, satisfied, content. It's certainly a statement of fact that in your standing before God as a Christian that you're blessed. But, but this word blessed, and the, and the same thing is true for the Greek word that we see, for instance, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the, those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's also true that that's intended to say this is your life today. There should be, if you're in Christ, an increasing sense of contentment and peace and satisfaction. Biblical happiness. Biblical happiness. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that the world is in constant pursuit of happiness. We find that to be so important that it's in our Declaration of Independence. Uh, Unfortunately, in the last century, the meaning of happiness has changed dramatically from a sense of contentment, a sense of satisfaction, to momentary experiences of pleasure. 
Happy is how you are in this moment, and that can change in a heartbeat. Our daughter and grandkids spent the night with us last night, and Linda and I were going to set up at One Hope Fellowship, and our grandson Rex, six years old, asked if he could go with us. And I said, if it's okay with your mom. And he was happy. And he ran upstairs. And then he was unhappy. And our granddaughter Lucy said, oh, sounds like the answer is no. It was that quick. It was that quick. That's not biblical happiness. That's pleasure. Nothing wrong with pleasure in some circumstances, but it's not happiness. But there's some real problems with the world's definition and pursuit of happiness. For one thing, it usually falls short. It's usually not what we expect it to be. I grew up in Southern California. I looked on the map. It was 15 miles from Disneyland. And when I was a kid, we made annual visits to Disneyland. And when you drive in on Harbor Boulevard, there's a big Disneyland sign. And on the sign is their motto, the happiest place on earth. And you hear that repeated when you go in. But if you'll just wait a few hours, you'll find out that it's not the happiest place on earth. Stand there in an hour-long line with a four-year-old, and it is not the happiest place on earth. The world's pursuit of happiness usually falls short. It, it often fails entirely. The rescue mission is largely filled with people who have tried to find happiness in a bottle or a pipe. And it's not happiness at all. It's simply a chemical rush. There is zero happiness to it. There is zero happiness to it. And the real problem with the world's pursuit of happiness ultimately is that it always results in greater misery. It always results in greater suffering. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't improve anything. Sometimes at all, and certainly not long term. The world's pursuit of happiness has a a long list of bad outcomes. Uh, Broken relationships, addictions, physical illness, death. The truth is that the world's pursuit of happiness is about as helpful as a man who has fallen off a cliff hugging himself as he plummets to try and make himself feel better. It's a futile pursuit. Well, we're told in this psalm how blessing is not found. Verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This blessed person doesn't live by the advice of the world. They don't follow the world's plan and purpose. The the Bible often uses the word walk as a metaphor for living, and that's what we see here. How blessed is the man, the, the woman, who does not live according to the advice of the world. A year ago, the uh, British Telegraph, a newspaper and website, ran an article called Why Men Should Give Their Wives a Cheat Pass This Christmas. The article is about why husbands should give their wives permission to have an affair. Why they should give their wives permission to commit adultery at Christmas. That's the world's advice. It's going to lead to destruction. I'm not sure if it's divorce attorneys who sponsored that article or if it's therapists who sponsored that article. But that is terrible, terrible, terrible 
advice. That's equivalent to if you want to be an Olympic marathon runner, the first thing you need to do is cut your leg off at the knee. It is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. But that's the world's counsel. Blessed is the person who doesn't follow that world's counsel. Second, the the blessed person, this truly happy man or woman, doesn't commit himself or herself to rebellion. They don't stand in the way of sinners. Standing in the way of sinners doesn't mean getting in the way of sinners. It doesn't mean trying to be an obstruction. Standing in the way of sinners means you identify with them. You stand with them. You put your feet down where they are. There's an irony here. The word sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament means to fall short. It means to come short. So the person who stands in the way of sinners is the person who has committed themselves to to staying short of the glory of God. We've all heard it said that, that all roads lead to heaven. It's not true. There's one road that leads to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ and his gospel. But if it were true that all roads leaded to heaven, leaded to heaven, that's a new use of that word. If it was true that all roads led to heaven, would it make any sense to stop before you got there? That's what standing in the way of sinners means. It says, I'm short of what God wants and I'm okay with that. I'll just stay where I am. And third, the blessed person, this happy man or woman, the contentment, the satisfaction, isn't interested in being a leader in wickedness. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. The Old Testament culture uses the picture of men sitting in the gates of a city as as positions of power, of, of city leadership, of being judges. We see Lot sitting in the, the gates of Sodom. He had gained enough prestige there that he was a leader in the town. In the book of Ruth, we see the man Boaz sitting in the gate of the city when he legally redeems Ruth according to the law of God so he can take her as his wife. We see Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat, king of the southern kingdom, sitting together on their thrones in the gate of the city of Samaria, making decisions. So the person who sits in the seat of scoffers is the professional mocker. They're the professional scornful critic who just delights in making fun of everything and tearing everything down. And they do it out of pride. They do it out of of arrogance. They live to spoil things. So we know what doesn't bring about blessing and happiness. What are the positive side? Where is blessing actually found? Well, what we see is in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The word delight means to find pleasure or satisfaction in something. Those who delight... In, in the scriptures, are those who not only make a decision of their will to dive into the word of God, it's something their heart longs for. They hunger for it. As the fourth beatitude says, this is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. They're starving for it. They can't wait to get to it. The, the scriptures bring her deep joy deep gladness they cheer her when she's low they gratify her they bring her contentment he hungers for the word of god it thrills him to be able to come to the scriptures have it in his heart and his mind 
this man, this woman, not only delight in the law of the Lord, that delight leads to biblical meditation. The Hebrew word here, I love this Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is Hagah. And Hagah literally refers to a growling or muttering sound. It's the, the sound that an animal might make. I hear it all the time because whenever Linda is deeply involved in Bible study, I hear her talking to herself. She's talking out loud. What's that? That's, 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 that's there. That's so, well, I, so, oh, oh. And when you're 10 feet away, you really can't hear what she's saying, but you hear this muttering. That's what it is. I think it could be that that what he says is, I'm just going to kind of come up with this mental description of what this person does. But it also could be that the psalmist says, you know something? Old Benjamin, when I see old Benjamin in the word, I know he's doing it because he's talking to himself. And he's working it out. That's biblical meditation. They're rolling the word over and over again in your mind. It's taking the words on the page that you see, taking the words that you hear, and then kneading them in your mind like you would knead bread and pondering it and chewing on it so that you can go from your mind down into your heart and your soul. That's biblical meditation. It's delighting in the Word of God so much that you don't want to just read the verse of the day. You want it to stay with you. You want something lasting from it. We all know that the world and the devil are going to tell us that we don't have time. We don't have time for that kind of deep contemplation. That's not true. That's not true. If you're like the average American, if you just turn the TV off one night a week, You'll have hours. And maybe you're not somebody who watches TV. Good for you. There's other places in your life. There's other decisions you can make in your life to say, I'm going to create a space at least once a week to carefully and patiently devour the Word of God. But there's, there's more to this blessedness, this happiness, this contentment, and this satisfaction than, than simply longing for the Word and then meditating on it. The blessedness is not just the longing and the meditation, it's the result of that. So what is the blessing The blessing of the blessed? Verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What is the blessing of the blessed? Well, first of all, it's stability. This, this man, this woman is like a tree. They're like a, they're like a tree planted by streams of water. Their roots have gone deep. They're stable. The floods come, the floods go. The winds rise, the winds settle down. That tree is there. This picture parallels Jesus' teaching that the man or the woman who hears his words and does them is like the person who builds his house on the rock. Colossians 2 talks about Christians being rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught. 
I just skimmed through the, the, the epistles yesterday and, and found many places where this idea of stability, strength, permanence, immovability comes for those who are in the scriptures and those who are in Christ. This person is stable. They are also healthy. They are planted by streams of water. They're not stuck out in the desert. They've sent the roots down deep, but there is a stream of water running by all the time. And so we, we, we sink ourselves into the scripture and the Holy Spirit, the, the living water that Jesus promised, flows in and out of us and through us in this living union that we have. Jesus described this same union in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Paul describes it in Galatians 2 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's a living union with our God through the the instrument of his word and by the power of his Holy Spirit. You don't have it by virtue of being a human being. You have it by faith in Jesus Christ as you come to the scriptures. The third aspect of The blessing of the blessed is fruitfulness. It yields its fruit in its season. A tree that is healthy and has a supply of water is going to bear the fruit God designed for it to bear. Whether that's actual fruit, whether it's leaves, however that works. And and we're the same. God designed us to be fruitful in his kingdom. Not only outwardly fruitful but inwardly fruitful as we grow. So we have things like the fruit of the Spirit, which is what the Holy Spirit does in us as we walk in the Spirit. We have the Beatitudes. They're another set of fruit. The poverty of of Spirit that brings about mourning over sin, that brings us to meekness and humility before God, that causes us to hunger and thirst for His righteousness, that leads to purity of heart, and on and on. We have that. Now, I do want to emphasize to you that he says it yields its fruit in its season. Your fruit is not my fruit. Your season is not my season. You don't get anywhere by looking at your life and saying, but I'm not like her. Look at her. Look at what she does. Look at the fruit of her life. I'm not fruitful. I don't have her fruit. Look at his season. There's something wrong with me. I don't have his season. You immerse yourself in the scriptures out of delight for the word, the Lord. You meditate on the word of God. And you have this promise that as you are rooted deeply and fed by the, liver, by the rivers of water that God has provided, that you will bear your fruit in your season. That's the promise that he makes. The fourth blessing is spiritual vitality. The leaves of this tree do not wither. They don't dry up. They don't fall off. This is an evergreen. There is always life there. The life of Christ always flows in his people. Always. Times of fruitfulness are different. The season of growth, the season of fruitfulness is different. But the life is evergreen it's always there 
And all of these kind of add up to this abundant life, to, to what he calls prosperity. In all that he does, he prospers. I've deliberately called it abundant life here because prosperity is such a loaded term. Prosperity means financial, primarily dollars, and then in our time it means health. The prosperity gospel is all about health and wealth. And that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about an abundant life. It's talking about a vital, living, thriving union with the Lord Jesus Christ in relationship with the Father through the the, the power of the Holy Spirit. If you delight in the Scriptures, if you make it a constant habit to meditate on it, think about it, ponder it, knead it in your brain, like kneading dough, and bring it down into your heart and into your soul, you are going to become more stable, more healthy, more fruitful, and more vital. That is prosperity. That is the abundant life that Jesus promised us. Life on earth is often hard. It's often very hard. As I was Writing these words yesterday, the, the, the people who came to mind are the, the families that I know that have lost children, sometimes in, in hard ways. The people whose lives have been devastated by, by divorce and betrayal. Life is hard. Sometimes it's so hard, people give it up. That's just the fact. But life in Christ is good. And life, is, life in Christ is not less good because life is hard. Sometimes life in Christ gets better when life is hard because we put our hope in Him. Well, what about the wicked? Not much is said, but a lot is said. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. None of these blessings apply to the wicked. And all he has to do is say, The wicked are not so. They are like chaff. And none of the rest of the things apply. I don't have to tell any of you what chaff is. I didn't grow up with chaff. I grew up in the city. I grew up a couple miles from the ocean. You all grew up with chaff. You go out and find that tree that's standing in that field or that's standing next to that river. That thing is 30 years old, 50 years old, 100 years old, rooted there, standing you go out today as people are harvesting and you see the chaff being blown out the back of the combine and tomorrow it's gone. What happened to it? A little, a little breeze picked it up and just moved it down the road. They don't stand. Chaff doesn't stand. Trees stand. He doesn't even bother to talk about uh, health or fruitfulness or vitality because there's no point. Chaff doesn't have anything that a tree does. The tragedy is that the wicked are not going to to stand in the judgment because the winds of judgment will just blow them clear. 
They won't stand in the congregation of, of the righteous. Any more than a pile of dead leaves is going to last a, a long time in the middle of a tree lot. Eventually the wind is going to come up and just blow that clear. And the way of the wicked will perish, and they will perish with it. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6. And he should know the way of the righteous. It's his way. We discovered that way because we delighted in his word. And we meditated on it. And we filled our minds with it. We filled our thoughts with it. And we went back and back and back and said, what is this? What is going on here? How does this make that connection? I I learned this last week that the Beatitudes of, of Matthew 5 are in a specific order and a logical order, and they build one to another. And they lead naturally and logically one to another. I didn't know that. I've been a believer a long time. I've been a pastor a long time. I didn't know that. It's through reading and letting somebody teach me and then asking, is that true? And pondering it and seeing it. And then, and then as, I'm, as I'm studying the Psalms, as I'm studying Psalm 1, realizing, wow, this is a beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. I never saw that. In a moment or two, I'm going to close with a, a prayer from the, from the book of Colossians that Paul offers. And as I read that prayer, now, now I see Psalm 1. And I think, oh, wow, I wonder if Paul was thinking of Psalm 1 as he prayed for them. I learn all the time. I learn all the time. And that's because the Lord has given me his word. And as I delight in it and I come to it, I learn and I become stable and healthy and fruitful and vital, and I have this abundant spirituality increasing. We're not going to have it in full in this life. We have to wait. Blessed assurance, the song. Remember that line, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. The gospel is strongly present in Psalm 1. The blessed man or the woman is not the one who works hard to impress God, trying to earn righteousness through their own efforts. By the grace of God, they've trusted in Christ, and they've realized that the world's counsel is pointless. Their own ideas are worthless. They've repented of living short of the glory of God. They have no interest in establishing their own power. They've become meek and humble before the Lord. They've trusted him. They long in his word. They've come to delight in the word of God, which means they delight in Jesus. They've come to meditate on the word of God, which means they have come to learn and meditate on the person of Christ. And all of this by the grace of God and the mercy of God, not through their own goodness. The gospel is rich here. And so bringing it home, I really have nothing to say except what it says. Delight yourself in his word. 
and meditate on it. Let's pray. Father, I lift up myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ. As we delight in your word and meditate on it, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Do this, Father, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of you. Let us be fully pleasing to you. Cause us to be fruitful in every good work. Let us increase in our knowledge of you. Strengthen us with power according to the the might that you have, that we would endure this world with patience and joy. And Father, we give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because your Spirit has qualified us through Jesus to share in your inheritance. And we do give you thanks in Jesus' holy name. Amen.